So I flew to Myanmar right after we won. And it was a 20-hour flight from New York to London all the way to Myanmar. And we visited our very first pilot site. And there was someone there who was waiting for us. It was the first person we interviewed. She was a single mother, but she was also a farmer. And her whole family was there. And basically what happened was that that year, her harvest was just too wet. It was off the charts. And because it just so happened that we had put a dryer in her village, she could dry it. And for her, it wasn't so much about reducing waste or selling for higher price. For her, it was like, I can sell because it's dry enough that I can sell in a condition that is sellable. Uh, for someone like her, who only depends on like two harvests a year, it means that we sort of helped recover six months of income. We saved six months of income. I never really understood the impact that we could have until she was there in front of me, thanking me. And she had brought her children along because she was like, you know, this is why I used to pay for their school and food on the table and fix the house. And I was like, oh, wow. Like I never expected that in my lifetime I would have done that, like help someone like that. And I think that that was, for me, was a catalyst where like, okay, wow, we actually have help people. Like it's not just a pitch that we're pitching at the UN or something like that. It makes a whole world of difference. And I think it was the stark difference that really drove it home for me. Where it's like, yeah, we can be there and like present and everything. But like, this is the point. This is actually real. And that is something that we strive for. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 47 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya. And today's guest is Lincoln Lee, co-founder of Rice Inc., a social enterprise that began as a submission to the prestigious $1 million help prize organized by the UN and former President Bill Clinton, which they eventually won. In this episode, Lincoln shares his journey for being interested in politics and entrepreneurship to how he ended up studying biomedical sciences at UCL in London, where he first heard about the help prize, the most prestigious startup competition available for students and the year-long journey he embarked on that involved participating in numerous competitive rounds to fund their pilot program in Myanmar, what it took to win the Hulk Prize, and why they end up being locked inside the UN. Are you ready for Lincoln's story? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. The turning point for me was I switched schools when I was 13 and I had just entered secondary school. So it's like entering a whole new world instead of, for example, instead of using pencils to write, use pens. But then I sort of felt like I had a group of friends at the end of the year and sort of, I want to say found my place, like, who finds their place at 13 years old. But you know, you sort of feel comfortable in the school. And then suddenly my parents were like, hey, you're going to change schools next year. I was like, huh? But I've never heard of this school. I don't know anyone. I remember I even asked them, so what sort of uniform do I need to wear? They were like, no, no, you just go there and buy. <laughs> and I was like, what? Okay. So when I went to this new school, they didn't have any of the activities that I was previously participating in. This is free garden. So I was in KDU before. In KDU, I was joining stuff like scouts and I was in musicals and things like that. But in street garden, they didn't have that. There was more sport focus and more, I guess, CCA focused. Then one day, someone came in and promoted this program called Model UN. And I never heard of it before. So I decided to give it a shot. To be honest, when I first entered it, I had no idea what I was doing. I just thought like, oh, okay, people are giving speeches. So it would be cool to learn how to give a speech. So I just went. The reason it sort of struck me in politics was because essentially it's about international diplomacy, right? It's simulating the UN. And a lot of people who do that also sort of do debate and are also interested in the politics of the day. So by virtue of being in the community, I started to really, really understand how uninformed I was um, and how informed everyone else 
seemed to be. And when and I spoke to my family about it and I spoke to my granddad in particular about it, he suddenly put up and he suddenly started explaining to me, oh yeah, you can do this, you can do that. Yeah, I've heard of this before. I've done this in real life before and this is not how it works in real life. And I was surprised because as I was growing up, I didn't really fully understand what it meant for him to work in politics. He once sat me down and he told me like, Lincoln, this is okay to do for fun in school but make sure you don't do it in real life. <laughs> and I asked him, why? Why not? Then he said, just trust me, don't do it. Then I was like, okay, okay. Then he was like, it's fun to do in real life, I know. I mean, sorry, it's, not, it's fun to do in school, I know. But you don't go and try to do it in real life. Then I was like, okay, okay. You study, then I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> but yeah, so that was uh, how it featured. It, it sort of stuck with me. So I do like to listen to news. And to be honest, in Malaysia, it's quite dramatic. So like it can be it's like watching a, a Netflix series kind of thing. So it is quite interesting. So even from the age of 13, you were already starting to dabble in entrepreneurship. How did that even begin? And how did you lose your parents' money? Uh, right, this is something I don't talk about often. <laughs> but so I think at that time, I don't really think I thought of it as entrepreneurship. I just thought of it like, oh, you know, you read a lot of stories about other 13, 14-year-olds who make money. So why can't I be like them? But basically, my mom was working in estate planning and sales. She would read a lot of these books, you know, about like, how do you like leverage your network and how do you grow rich dad, poor dad. And so there are a lot of these stories about all these people inside who take risks and stuff. And so I always thought about when I was young, like, oh yeah, I can try this too. I can try that too. I would think it's interesting. And I think funnily enough, at that time, I joined joined some multi-level marketing companies, which is very, before I, I talk about it, right? It's like very controversial, right? And there's a good reason why it's very controversial. But that being said, when it originally started, it's supposed to be like a legitimate business model. People who want to get cash fast make it unlegitimate. But it is actually very difficult to succeed in it, probably even more so than a normal business. But what happened is that, so I would start to dabble in all these sort of things. For some of the entrepreneurship opportunities that I joined, like the people that I spoke to, they seemed legitimate and they were people who were not, who were significantly older than me, but they were 20, 30 years old. Actually, some people are our age now. They were making a sustainable income out of it. And when I brought my parents, because I was like, oh, hey, maybe I want to try doing it when I'm 14. And they were very, very shocked because we are already an outlier because we are like uni students who found a way to make it work where a lot of other uni students have failed because they know multi-level organizations, you get like a lot of people joining very quickly and only some people succeed. And then here comes along this 14-year-old kid who wants to try what they thought they've already done at when they're 21, 22. And that's like amazing. So I brought my parents, of course, to see whether it was like legit and stuff because my parents are not just going to finance me without knowing it. They specifically told me like, okay, don't work with this guy, work with this person. <laughs> this person seems more trustworthy, that kind of stuff. And so I went with that and I tried it. And the thing about entrepreneurship at that age, which I quickly realized, was that for me, life got in the way very quickly in terms of school. So it was very difficult. It actually did manage to get some sales, but very quickly, for example, when you face a challenge and then your exam comes up, after you finish your exam, you're not going to think about it because you're just going to remember the challenge. And then before I knew it, like six months would have passed or like a year would have passed. And that sort of became a norm throughout my, how do you say, like my high school life where I tried to start something entrepreneurial. So a couple of years later, I tried starting a marketing company doing advertisements because I was really into filmmaking. And I remember I had a friend who was very good at drawing and storyboarding. I had a friend who was very good at filming and I had a friend who was very good at video editing. So I was like, why don't I bring all of you together and then we just do something. And I remember it took us three months to try and get a contract from this random F&B shop. And when we finally, finally did it, it was more of a relative that finally pushed us through. We suddenly had our exams, like we had our like IGs, so like SPMs. It took out three months. And after a three month period, 
we were so exhausted from the exams. Everyone sort of like, by nature, we sort of forgot about it because we want to enjoy the end of our exams. And then after when we come back to it, like six months later, we're like, oh shit, it's been six months. And even the client is like, yeah, it's fine. Like we don't really need it anymore. That sort of became a thing where I started to realize, okay, if I wanted to do something, I would have to do it consistently and not have something come in the way all the time to drag me out of it. Because at that time, you can't compromise on studies, right? And then you also did this passive paper printing startup yeah so (laughs) that was before i went to uni so what happened it it started very innocently so at that time my dad and granddad they had health issues they were both hospitalized for a few months i was doing an internship in singapore at the time and so i stopped and i came back to kl and just followed them to the hospital after they were both stabilized they came back home but they couldn't go out i had this long period of just being at home so i started to feel a bit bored (laughs) and Then I met some of my friends who had also just finished college and were waiting for university or starting uni. And one of them came to me and was like, hey, Lincoln, I have this uh, brilliant business idea. I was like, okay, what's up? (laughs) He was like, I have this friend who is a printing shop owner and he wants to break into the market. And I realized that when I was in college, every single student buys a book from the lecturer because the lecturer tells them, please buy your book from this guy. It's a textbook. And the thing about it is that the textbook is the same every year and the guy charges students like 25 bucks. But I know from my friend, because I, I took the book and I went to my friend, he says I can print it for 11. I was like, okay. Then my friend was like, so why don't we come in at like 18 and 19? All we have to do is just blend in. The students are not going to care. Like they're just going to buy the book. So I was like, that's brilliant. But did you know that <laughs> I have an even better way? Because when we were taking IGs or A-levels or whatever, many of the times we would have to do pass your papers to practice. And most of it we know is available online but many people if they are not so diligent to go and print online like every year because they split it up by years and so it's like a whole list of pdfs what some of the shops do which is quite ingenious is that they will compile all the pdfs into like a subject and they'll print it out so this will be like year 2002 all the way to year 2020 and it'll be like this thick ass book and they'll sell it for like a couple of hundred like 300 400 ringgit and the thing is that at that time a few years ago there was only like one or two shops in KL who were printing it. So you can only go there to buy those. Can you go find out the cost of that? Because the cost of that is like 30, 40 ringgit. So instead of coming at 18 and it costs 11, you can come in at 200, right? <laughs> Which is half the price of them. Then he was like, hey, let me go home and do some calculations and then make sure it's correct. And he went home, came back. He was like, yeah. He was like, can I actually do this? <laughs> I was like, tomorrow you want to go to our old school and speak to our teachers. Um, and, and yeah, so then we, we started to going to schools. I remember the first time we pretended to be students in college because we were college age. We went to the school. We pretended to be students. And then we walked up to the school. I will not say the school's name. <laughs> we walked up to the front of the class and be like, welcome to so-and-so class. By the way, guys, if you have a need for this book for your school, you can let us know. Call this number or like scan this QR code, something like that. And, and we'll let you know. And then walk out and a few days later there would be people calling us with people messaging us saying like oh hey yeah do you have this book and i remember there was one time the person that supposed to be collaborating with the lecturer i guess to say was sitting there and then one student came up to me and this was actually quite bad but they were like oh but the person is selling it for like 18 as well like what's the difference now like, oh okay then i'll give it to you guys for 17 now. I, I just said it very nonchalantly and then suddenly as i walked out a lot of people started following me and then they were like oh hey yeah, the guy said that you're gonna give it for 17 i was like maybe a range of difference and then i was like okay okay but sure like here here you guys go like here are the copies of the textbook uh, and then my friend came out i was like wait what happened and i was like oh I, I told them i'll give it to them at 17 i was like why and because the other guy is giving it 18 then I was like, oh that's brilliant but yeah so it was a very fun i guess project that we did before we went to uni given all the things that you were doing why was it that you end up doing biomedical sciences 
that was why I said it's after college before uni, so applications passed. But I think the main reason why I chose biomed was I am definitely afraid of blood, but I was very interested in medical sciences. So I can't be a doctor. I can't be the Asian dream because I would freeze and threaten the patient's life. And so I decided that I wanted to study something in the medical sciences that didn't require me to be exposed to blood on a daily basis. I settled on biomedical science because it was pitched to me as everything a doctor does except the operations. And I was like, okay, that sounds interesting. So before you went and did it, you did another big activity after IBM, which was to organize a Pokemon walkathon. So Pokemon Go was like all the rage, right? When it came out in, I think, August 2016. And at that time, our printing project was ramping up. So it was still the same team. But we were always discussing ways of like, what else can we do? Because it's fun. We like to work together. And we were all sort of free at the time. So we were like, you know, we have this gap. What should we do? And one day, as we were playing Pokemon Go, basically, one guy was like, hey, what if someone did a walk, like a walk-thon of it? And we all just sort of like, whoa, actually, that's a really, really good idea. How would we do that? And we basically decided that we needed a lot of partners. And so we basically went to Explorer. Like, if you want to organize a walk-a-thon like that, what do you need? And the thing we realized was Pokemon Go was only going to be a rage for like a month or two, right? And it was going to die down. So you needed to organize it within that time frame, which is like nearly impossible, right? How are four kids going to organize a walkathon in the span of two weeks? The thing was that getting the people on board was the easy part. People would just join. If you create a Facebook group and stuff, we had like 12,000 followers, that kind of thing. But getting it done in real life, now that's the difficult part. And that was actually the first time I got exposed to social entrepreneurship, which is very innocently enough. We needed to collaborate with someone who's very good at bringing people together, right? Bringing partnerships together. And we approached it more from an event management perspective than a social entrepreneurship perspective. But that exposed me to it. And then later, what we got exposed to was like, okay, there's a lot of legal loopholes you need to run through. That started us off on this crazy journey as three 18, 19-year-old kids trying to navigate and apply for licenses that we had no idea existed, that we only heard about in the news, that politicians fail to get when they try to protest, the birthday fails to get it or something. We had to like navigate. Lah, and, and it was interesting exposure to civil service as well, to understand how to like sort of read between the lines sometimes and to understand what makes them tick. How do you even fill up the application form, which is like 10 pages long? Who do you even submit it to? How do you expedite it? Because like it's not gonna, it's probably gonna be in someone's desk forever. And then once you finish, who else do you talk to? Who is gonna like protect the people as they walk on the street? Where do they go? I remember we walked through the streets of Bukit Bintang at like 2 a.m. in the middle of the night trying to find lights. Okay, if they go here, but look, there's a fence there. And even though we put do not touch this fence, someone's gonna touch this fence. And then like we are gonna have to deal with it if they get injured. And then like, okay, how do you have an ambulance on standby? And then when how do they walk? through the malls and then some malls actually contacted us when they heard we were going to do this which was very interesting like going to meet some of the people like so young right and I think they were shocked why are they like three kids walking in <laughs> meeting us like when they are like trying to discuss like hey can you walk us through maybe we can offer a discount at like certain stores to like get people to have heavier footfall in our malls and unfortunately at the end we couldn't pull it off it was just too big of a challenge we actually met someone else who wanted to maybe take it on but maybe move it away to another location and was more experienced like a businessman who's done this before but then we were about to go to university so we decided okay maybe it's not <laughs> it's not the best time to try to start something two weeks before you're supposed to fly off to uni because you might have to delay a month of your university if, if we do it together and yeah and interesting exposure into the whole world of civil society civil service and for me my first exposure to social entrepreneurship you went to UCS and I think it was mm -hmm. your second year when you realized that life sciences wasn't quite for you and you wanted to mm -hmm. switch to entrepreneurship. Why was that? Why was that switch? 
I think that even before university, I realized entrepreneurship was quite fun, right? Doing all this. And then in the first year of university, I realized that all my friends were going on internships, right? So they're working at all the big banks, consulting, investment banking, things like that. And I don't know why, I just didn't feel like I would fit in. So I didn't really bother applying. But after a certain point, you sort of feel like FOMO. <laughs> so <laughs> so I started going to a couple of events to like try and see if I could get a job, get an internship. And I met one of our, so like in the UK, you have like your Malaysian societies. I met one of the residents there and he was like, what are you doing here? I thought you participated in some of the clubs which are supposed to like get you this kind of internships anyway. It should be easy for you to get it. And I told him, well, to be honest, I don't really know what I want. And then he told me, well, why don't you try a startup? I have a couple of people who have reached out to me and I know them personally and it will be quite fun. It will be definitely be something that you won't get anywhere else. So I was like, okay, let me try it. So I ended up at a startup, Smart Real Asia. And I think that was the first proper, proper exposure into a startup because what they did was business intelligence in the construction industry. So it was a lot of collecting data, crunching the data and then pushing it out to clients, a lot of tech, and also seeing a lot of the business development side, the non-tech business development side of a tech company. It was pretty funny because apparently I was never supposed to be an intern. There was a bit of miscommunication in the beginning because they only hired tech interns. I was the first person that they hired for a non-tech role. And what happened was that the company was based in Singapore and they were expanding to Malaysia. And the reason a role opened up was because in Malaysia, the data was not as easily obtainable as in Singapore. So in Singapore, you can get it from a lot of web resources. But in Malaysia, some of it still had to be, you can't just scrape it from the web. You need to obtain it from physical, basically like construction sites or like billboards. So I was basically brought in and the task was like, okay, basically you have to collect all this data and process it, but you take care of all the non-tech related ones. So the ones that you cannot find on the web. Also, I was like, how do I do that? Like At one point they were like, you need to know what that construction project is happening before they break ground. I was like, how? <laughs> it's not going to appear on the internet. How am I supposed to know? <laughs> what, I sneak into the boardrooms is it? And so that gave me a first exposure because then every day I'll be working with my counterparts who are the, the tech side, understanding what the process they implemented it and seeing how can I replicate that in real life, but without using tech because it's not available on the web. Ended up having to like coordinate tons and tons and tons of riders. They are mo mostly freelancers. So I would coordinate hundreds and hundreds of them and I would, I would like, take the information I get from the web and process it into potential like high value sites and ask them to go and speak to the people there. So there are like techniques that you can explain to them to get them to be more chill. I mean, it's sometimes pretty well known when people will speak to them because you don't need to speak to the manager. You can just speak to the guards there who would know like, oh yeah, this company comes. You can see the trucks painted and the side of the name and all these kind of stuff you can see. And in Malaysia, there's a board that you have to put for all the lists and things like that. So all these sort of things taught me business development and it exposed me to this culture of startups. And that's when in the second year, I decided, okay, maybe I want to explore this properly. So what I then began was I began to basically study everything I could about entrepreneurship. I signed up for courses. I signed up for like programs and everything in my second year. I suppose you were not just signing up for all these courses. You were also telling people as well like Kissam, who was in the same hall as you. Mm -hmm. How did you guys end up applying for the help prize? So it's quite coincidental because me and Kisam, we felt that we connected because we both were in life sciences. Even if we were to work in life sciences, we we're more interested in the business aspect of it. So like pharmaceutical sales. And we wanted to help each other succeed. So we had these sessions where second year is like the proper internship. That's the culture in studying overseas. So we will basically meet each other every week to try and help each other apply. 
Because we thought like, okay, maybe if we apply together, if we practice together, if we look through each other's things and we're applying to roughly the same places, our chances of success would increase. So it started off with like a, you know, like these kind of sessions. And then one day, he was the president of the Life Sciences Club. So the Hulk Price campus director at UCL was trying to promote Hulk Price since it was the first year that Hulk Price came to UCL. This is Masha uh, Semkova. Yeah, yeah, Masha. So Masha was also someone who lived in our hall in the previous year. So she knew Kisum and she asked Kisum to promote it. And he was like, he had like a lot of posts scheduled or something. So he was like, okay, okay, okay. And then one day, I think she asked him while I was there with him. So I was like, oh, right, dude, have you heard of this thing? <laughs> and surprisingly enough, one of my friends was actually part of a committee as well. So I had seen it like, on like Instagram and social media. And so I was like, yeah, I sort of seen it, but I don't really know what it's about. <laughs> uh, and then he, so I remember he said, okay, let's click into it. And then he clicked into it. And then like the website came up and like Bill, you see Bill Clinton's face there. And then he was like, oh, <laughs> this looks cool. And I was like, wow, they get a million dollars. And then we were like, oh, it's social entrepreneurship. And I was like, oh, right. Yeah, my friend told me about this one. It's like business plus charity, somewhere in between. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then at the time, like, you know, that was my understanding. And then he was like, oh, okay. And then he was like, hey, you, you want to join? It'll be good for our CV <laughs> um, to apply to, you know, internships. So I was like, yeah, sure, why not? And we left it at that. And then like, I think a couple of weeks later, I was taking a nap and he called me and he was like, let's go for the hot price talk right now. And I was like, why? Because I lived like 25 minutes away from university. So I was like, oh, it's cold. It's raining. <laughs> why do I have to go there now? And, and, then, and then he was like, dude, just come. Like, I'm sure it'll be fine. Like, I'll, I'll save you a spot. Like, just come quickly. And I was like, okay, fine, fine. So I, I went there and we listened to the presentation and we were like, this actually sounds like quite exciting. It sounds very, very low chance <laughs> like that we would even get to the next round. But why not, right? Like, what do we have to lose, right? Me and Kisum, this is the mindset I had. I heard Kisum won quite a bit of competition before. So maybe if I joined with him, he'll win. A few months later, he told me that he had thought the same thing about me. So, <laughs> but, so it all turned out well. But yeah, so that, that's how we started off. Innocently enough, we just sort of like, hey, let's just try and explore it. And that's how we started. I mean, to put it in context, the help price is quite a huge thing, right? It's the world's largest startup challenge for student entrepreneurs. And you said there were very low chance you were competing against 200,000 other students around the world mm. for $1 million. So very, very, very exceptionally low chances. I think there was someone who said yeah. you have a higher chance of winning, get, yeah, winning the lottery than yeah, the help price. That's amazing. Yeah, so yeah. for your particular year, the official challenge was build a scalable, sustainable social enterprise that harnesses the power of energy to transform the lives of 10 million people by 2025. That's very, very ambitious and also very broad. So how do you begin to think about that question and build a team around it? So we began by building a team around it. And we decided that because most of our teams were from our friends and from Southeast Asia, we wanted to do something in Southeast Asia. And so we did what a lot of teams do in that situation, which is we started throwing out ideas, which ones we like, which ones we don't like. And we would spend days on ends arguing about it. Not arguing so much, but like you can't really find the one that fits. It's just sort of like, okay, this feels right. And we didn't really find something that fit. We had like a lot of interesting ideas like vertical farming, urban farming, solar powered lampposts, composting, things like this solar-powered machinery, but nothing really stuck. It was only when we decided, maybe let's just scrap this, right? Let's just look for an issue that we can solve. Instead. And that was actually really powerful. We never really understood 
we sort of made that decision, but never really fully understood what sort of decision we're making, where we, we were actually telling ourselves, let's look for a problem instead of searching for an idea. And that's actually much more better because if you look for a problem, you know that the problem is grounded in reality. Your ideas can change, but the problem, if it's properly a problem, it won't change because it's still there. So it becomes a, something easy to base your your enterprise around. And we we went to search for a problem, right? And Hotprice had like this huge challenge document that detailed like six key areas and one of them was agriculture. And so as we were like researching, I still remember like it was like at some dormitory common area and we were all like on our laptops. It was like 2 a.m. when I was like reading about agriculture, this article popped up in Southeast Asia and when he said like 80% of rice is wasted before it gets to play. And I was like, what? No, <laughs> that's impossible. Like this is a fake article. We later found out it was fake. But I was like, how can this be? And then I sort of like turned it around. <laughs> and I'm like, guys, look at this. And Kison was like, huh? No, like he was like, do I eat rice every day? How can this happen? Like, you know, as Asians, we do eat, eat rice every day. So how can 80% of rice be wasted before it gets to plate, right? And later on, we found out the number is much lower. It's closer to 30%, but that's still significant. Up to 30% of it can be wasted. Why does it happen? And that sort of sparked that eureka moment. And I think that's sort of when you know you're on the right track. you got to look for these moments where there's a reason why you feel shocked about it. So dig into that. Dig into your shock. And that's what we did. We tried to find out what was this problem. Why did it happen? What was causing it? And then we realized that actually we had stumbled upon something we can actually develop into a viable business for the hot price for our presentation that was coming up in a week. And we also realized that suddenly 10 million people was achievable because think about how many people eat it every day. And it definitely sort of sparked off like this journey. Innocently enough, it honestly just started off where like, okay, let's find out why is it a problem. So what was the problem? So the problem was that we first realized there's a lot of problems and it's all interrelated. You cannot just click one and think that everything else goes away. It, But mainly the problems come from the market conditions with which 70% of the world's rice is grown, right? 70, 70 to 80% of it is still grown by smallholder rice farmers. And it's the circumstances and the conditions surrounding their, I guess, communities and livelihood and their way of life. That is the thing causing a lot of this to happen. And it's not just causing waste to happen, right? Waste was how we entered into the ecosystem. We realized this was a problem. You also have poverty. You also have malnutrition. You have food security. You have climate change as well. Rice is a leading emitting factor of methane. So you have all these problems. And like the main problems that we, at that time, we wanted to tackle was we realized that, okay, a lot of the waste happens because smallholder farmers, they don't have access to proper agriculture technologies because they're poor. They can't afford it. The technologies are out there, but they don't have access to it. So what is the technology that we could implement quickly that would have a large impact? And we found that, okay, in the supply chain, after harvesting, many people have already worked on harvesting. You know, you have tractors and all these kind of things. The next stage was drying and many of them still sun-dried. And this actually causes a lot of the waste to happen in the drying process, but more so downstream when you start to mill it and transport it. So we were like, okay, how do professional companies dry? And we realized that there's actually a lot of technology out there and innovations out there that was not getting into the hands of the farmers. So then we decided, can we be the person that brings it to the farmers just by innovating the business model of the technology itself? Which technology should we use? Can we pair it up with the region and the needs of the farmers specifically in a way that they can access it in a way that's affordable? So it was a lot of business model innovation in the beginning, not really so much tech innovation. And that was that, that honestly formed the first basis of our idea where we were like, okay, can we get like an off-the-shelf technology, open source technology, and adapt it for a region we choose needs and make it accessible to the farmers, the people who need it. 
So at the time when you were first tackling this problem and you realized that this drying issue was something that smallholder farmers were facing, I imagine this is a problem that farmers all over the world would face wherever they are planting this rice. So how do you decide on focusing initially on just Vietnam? So we initially decided on Vietnam because Kison was from Vietnam. Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> He's not from Vietnam. He, he then I will ask why. That will ask why did you not focus on Malaysia? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Got it, got it, got it. I, I'll answer both. So we initially focused on Vietnam simply because when we were doing our research, we realized that the Mekong Delta was sort of like the rice bowl of the region. Like that's where a lot, a lot of the rice came from, and a large portion of it was in Vietnam. The logic was we should go where there's the densest concentration of the farmers. And we based our research on that initially. And why we weren't in Malaysia in the beginning was that we actually did try. So later on, we actually did explore fields in Malaysia. We actually spoke to farmers in Malaysia. But I think what we soon realized was that in Southeast Asia, each country's rice industry is unique and it has its unique challenges. So the problems that we were projecting onto or like the problems that we were designing our model to tackle might not have been suitable in certain countries because in certain countries, for example, in Malaysia, farmers don't need to dry their rice because they sell it, they already sell it wet and there's someone who will dry it for them already. The farmers have not like sun-dried or dried their rice personally. At least majority of the farmers in Malaysia for, I guess, the past like 20, 30 years. It would be more difficult for us to ask them to restart doing it again and for us to dislodge the incumbent because that doesn't make sense. And it's same for Vietnam. So we quickly realized that the technology we wanted to bring was actually already accessible to the farmers there. The farmers had gotten to a point where they were willing to take the investment and the manufacturers of technology had gotten the barriers low enough that a lot of farmers could access it. Then we decided that we don't need to go into Vietnam or we can't go into Malaysia. And how were you getting all of your information or research? Because I imagine a lot of these things you can only get it from people who are on the ground, who have seen it in real life. It's not just available online. So how did you get those good solid intel for you to build your business model? So in the beginning, we used online information because we were in London halfway across the world. We used a lot of resources online to craft together an idea of what was going on. And then what happened was that we started to realize that all of the resources was done by like one or two organizations. So we then decided, let's contact these people. We contact the International Rice Research Institute, which published, which is basically like the UN of rice. And they know everything about it. And after spamming a couple of people with clickbaity emails, uh, a couple of them got clickbaited <laughs> and replied us. And after bouncing around, to a few of them and taking very early morning calls because our time zone is way behind in London. We finally got to people who were on the ground who was working specifically, like the guy who developed the technologies that would be deployed in the field. And that's when they told us, okay, so this country is like this, this country is like that. This is how you are helping them. This is how you can't help them. And this is where you should go. And I think that UCL also provided a lot of support as well. Like before your first round, which is the UCL round, you actually went to Bo Thiel, who I believe is the business advisor. And he basically gave advice on what you thought was an amazing pitch at the time. What was it like meeting yeah. with him? Uh, when we first met Bao, uh, it was very interesting. We had practiced our presentation for the campus round of the Hawk Prize with all of our friends every single night for the whole week. And we had changed it every single day. So improve, improve, improve. So we thought like, okay, you know, the last two nights, people have been like, this is great, this is amazing. You know, we got it. We're going to get some real good feedback from these people. We go in and Bao destroys us. <laughs> he rips apart our presentation by asking us a couple of very, very pointed questions that really revealed the weaknesses of our business. What kind of questions was he asking? Um, at that time, we had no answer to 
why do we need more rice? Why reduce the amount of waste in the rice industry? How many people are hungry? And we had no answer to that. Honestly, all we needed was actually a Google search on how many people are actually hungry in this world. And there are actually like 800 million people hungry every day. So it's actually a really big issue. Not having enough food is not just a concern now, but a concern in the future as well, because our overpopulation will like outpace production, right? By a certain year. And there's a real concern of whether we have enough food to eat by 2050. And he was basically trying to get that point across to us. But he wanted us to understand why he was asking that. Because he was like, if you're just presenting about reducing waste, reducing waste, reducing waste, with no idea of what the waste is going to tackle, then like, what's the point? And I think what happened was when we realized that, oh no, this is a big change that we're going to have to redesign out the whole reason for why we exist. We thought that it would be impossible. And he was like, you guys should just change the whole thing. And then I was like... I'm not going to listen to you. <laughs> I don't want to listen to you. When we went back, we were so dejected. We were like, oh, maybe we should just not listen to him. You know, he's just being mean. But when we realized that he had a point and then we had two choices, either we continue what we had, which was like a very good, well-polished presentation with some flaws, yes, but maybe not everyone asks us that question. And we just practice until we became really good at presenting it. Or we took his advice and sort of revamped the whole thing, insert new information and try to redesign the thing within two days. Eventually, we decided to do the latter. And well, it turned out well because we won by a very, very narrow margin. <laughs> but a couple of months later, we met Bao Dian and he told us that actually he did that to every single team who met him. And nearly every single team did meet him. And the point is, it's not difficult to do that to a early stage team because it's so early stage. It's always very easy to find the flaws. But what he wanted to see was he wanted to actually pose that team with that exact problem I just talked about. Do you do what you do without any risk because you're afraid to take the risk? Or do you take the risk and try to make it better? And he was like, he was happy that we took the risk and make it better. And, and he was happy that that's where we were at. And that started off a very good relationship. And we still talk to him today and he still helps us out, advises us even to this day. So you said that most teams went to him. Did most teams take on his advice or decide to just continue? No, most, most teams just decided to continue and just not take the risk. Wow. So you went through the UCL round and after the UCL round, you changed a lot as well. One of it was that you switched your operations from Vietnam to Myanmar. So what were those big changes? How did that come about? Well, our switch happened more precisely after the regional rounds, but how did the change came about was because we spoke to the International Rice Research Institute and it was very funny because we knew that they know more about rice than us. So it would be funny if we preached to them what we want to do. So we told them in the beginning, like, okay, before we present our idea to you, we're going to put a disclaimer that we definitely have some information wrong or some information that's not up to date because you guys have the latest information. You definitely know about this more than us. I'm going to skip the part of where we're going to pilot this at because what I'm going to do is I'm going to present an idea to you and at the end, I hope you'll tell me two things. First is you'll tell me which of my information is wrong <laughs> and give me the correct information. And the second is you'll tell me where can this be implemented. And so I did that. And at the end, he told us, yeah, you should go to Myanmar. And why Myanmar? Because he mentioned that the market was ready for it, meaning that the farmers were aware of this problem. They were aware of the benefits. They just didn't have access to it. So they were like at that cusp where you have awareness and education, but you don't have access yet. So all you need is someone to come in with access. And that was not the case for Vietnam? In Vietnam, they already had access. So it would have been too late. We'd just be coming in like a competitor. So once you have decided that it was going to be at Myanmar, then I suppose you had to start planning to actually go to Myanmar rather than just doing yeah, everything. That was the fun part. Firstly, you had to raise funds because I don't imagine anyone gave you any money, right? You had to support yourself and go there, run the pilot. Tell us about how you firstly raised the funds. 
So there's this very famous entrepreneurship thing where like you can raise funds from the three Fs, friends, family, and fools. We didn't go down that path. So what happened was, well, we turned to UCL first, right? And we realized that we essentially had nothing, right? We had no money. So what we had was we had a pitch. That's it. Like we just had a good presentation because Hot Price is, I guess, one of the nerve wracking parts about Hot Price is it's winner take all every single round. So like one winner emerges from the campus round to go to the regionals. One winner from the regionals goes to the accelerator. And then six teams go from accelerator to finals and one winner, like second place gets nothing. So we had a good pitch, right? After the regional rounds, but we had no money. So we went to UCL and we told them like, okay, we need funds. This is why we had gone further than anybody expected at that time. But at the same time, there's still a long way to go to the finals. So it's still a 50-50 on like, okay, are they like... You know, <laughs> are they like going to do it or not? Can they go the distance? And Bao was like, all right, since all you guys have is a very good pitch, right? Go and join another pitch competition that gives you money if you win on that round itself. Smaller one. He asked us, when does your exam end? Because this was right before our exams. We told him, okay, our exam ends on one of the Fridays, right? And he was like, okay, sorry, on the Tuesday that your exam ends in the morning, on the Thursday, the Friday, there's a competition that's coming up. And then I was like, okay. Okay. And then he was like, if you want, this is an interesting competition because it's with all the other London UDs. And what they do is it's a bit like a poker game. Each uni is only able to submit one startup to enter. And this startup has to have won something else. So that was fine for us because we won the hall already. So they enter and the uni will pay a sum of money for that person to enter. And what will happen is that this entry fee will be pulled from all the universities will be pulled together and the winner will take it all. So it's a bit like poker. Um, and so he was like, if you want, we can pay for you to go. Uh, and then it's up to you to like do us proud. And then we were like, okay, let's do it. So we went and then we only realized that after we finished our exams, right, we realized that the competition format was totally different from Hulk. It was like, for Hulk, we had six minutes. It went into two minutes. And so, you know, can you imagine like six minutes presentation, you cut down to two minutes, it's nearly impossible. And so all the rules changed. If you, example is like, many people say that if you pitch, right, try to use as few words as possible. Use more pictures, more imagery, be more interactive. For two minutes, it's flipped because you need them to read more. So you need to put a little bit more words and say less <laughs> so that they have time to fill in the gaps. So it's, it's very tricky. And this is where our relationship with probably with Baustor started being crystallized more because he, he actually came in and I remember, I think on the Thursday when we met him, the day before, he was like, okay, like this is actually the way you guys have been doing, like cutting it down is a bit wrong. We have to like go the other way. And so he sat reverse until like it was like one, two way at UCL, the hatchery space, just the three of us around the table this whiteboard and we just like write slide one slide two that kind of thing we really worked late into the night next day we started practicing it we delivered the presentation and then we found out that they will only let us know one month later who won even though they had decided on the spot <laughs> i was like what um but okay it doesn't matter but throughout that process right ucl saw how hard we worked and how good our presentation was and they also said at the end, they were like, okay, we'll give you a bit of funds in the beginning, like a couple of one, two thousand pounds, start you off so that you have something. You don't have zero, but you have something. And maybe you can use this something to get more. I think that is sort of like the trick. You show them how serious you are. And, and so then we decided, and, but once we did that once, right, we went back and I was like, okay, maybe we should just scour the net for any sort of like tournaments like this. And we can join and see if we can get our pilot funding from winning all these. And, and that's what we eventually did. 
How much funding were you supposed to raise? So we estimated that we would probably need definitely more than 10,000 US dollars because the machinery itself that we were going to would cost that much. So if you added in the other costs, we'll probably be looking at something close to about 20,000 to do a pilot. And we eventually managed to get to that figure. There was a moment when momentum was high and we were actually winning quite a few. We joined Top for Food in Brazil. We joined like UCL Entrepreneurs Venture Fund at UCL. We also joined like some in Malaysia. Everyone would give like 1,000, 500, 2,000. And when you all pulled it together, that became enough for us to basically run off as pilot. What do you think was the reason, if you were, that you guys stood out and you managed to win all these competitions? Because you hadn't even gone to the country yet. You had nothing beyond pure research to show for and a very polished pitch. To be honest, it depends on which sort of competition you join as well. There are some that do want to support people like that. There are some that where they know that we want to support ultra early stage startups where it's just an idea. And the reason is they need that a bit of that funds in order to make the ideas a reality. And I think people invest in people, not in the idea itself. So it's really about whether they believe that you would execute it or you would take that money and just spend it. Because they at that, at that stage, they have no control. Right? They're not asking for something in return. It's just like a price. So you have to really believe that this person will actually take the funds and utilize it for something that is meaningful. I mean, we didn't have to hide it. We could really show people that we were sincere. We were excited to do this because we wanted to pilot it. And that sort of rubbed off on people. And we would find interesting ways to stand out. For example, because we haven't piloted, right? So how do people get a concept? One of the top for food in Brazil, right? They had this challenge where you had to submit a video application describing your idea. Now, ideally, when you describe the idea, you get to show your idea. How are we supposed to show them? We, don't, we are not farmers. We were in London. So what I told my friend was like, you know how we always describe that at the time we had a machine called the solar bubble that we wanted to, that we were hoping to implement in the field. We always, this when people didn't understand how it worked, we always described it is imagine a solar panel connected to a hairdryer connected to a plastic bag. And then the plastic bag is where you put the rice in and you just pull the hairdryer. I say, since we always tell people this, I was like, what if we actually do it in real life? We go and find a hairdryer, make something look like a solar panel, get some rice, put it on a plastic bag and dry it while we are talking about the thing. And that's what we did. So I remember one fine day in Russell Square, we, we went down there with people having their picnics. We laid out our mat and we put some rice there and we started drying it with a hairdryer. Well, you can't actually power the hairdryer. And then my... Kison had this brilliant idea where he was like, because we were talking about improper drying methods, right? So when he flashed to that, he, was, he, he, he made the words come out like improper drying methods. This is like what we want to change. <laughs> and, and it was so fun. It helped us stand out and it helped people remember us. And I think sometimes most people underestimate the power of being memorable. If you're memorable, then people remember what you do and they're more likely to actually like pick you for an opportunity. Incredible. So you raised 20,000 pounds and you were ready to go to Myanmar. What was the plan? What were you telling people? I believe you reached out to Vani, who eventually became one of your teammates, and you said, hey, you want to spend your summer planting rice? <laughs> so was that the idea? Yeah. What were you planning to do? That statement actually came from Vani herself, because when I described it to her, <laughs> it sounded like I wanted her to be a farmer. <laughs> so I asked her before our exams and then I messaged her again after our exams, I remember. And she was like, why? You want me to plant paddy for you? Uh? <laughs> then, uh, I was like, yes. Um, but I think the plan at that time, we just really wanted to get into the communities and we wanted to speak to the farmers. We wanted to do our customer service. We wanted to understand our work, understand our market. And getting to it was a challenge, right? There were costs would be involved getting there. Coordination was 
had to be involved getting there. It's a country we don't know. I speak the language. We need to get people who can speak the language. And we tried all sorts of ways. We actually found students at UCL who were like, hey, i from Myanmar. And like, I'll follow. Like, it sounds cool. And then we were like, yeah, sure. Maybe like, maybe you just stay with us so we pay for your like accommodation and food. And they were like, yeah, sure, it's fun. Like, I also never visited some of these communities before. And and that's how we started. Like, we, we honestly went there and we were like, the only goal is to get there and get the International Rice Research Institute staff to bring us there so that the farmers would trust us because they trusted them since they worked with them before. And then from there, that's where we started to explore. We would ask questions like, okay, so who do you sell to? Where do you buy this from? Can we meet this person? Can we meet this person tomorrow? Can we go to his house now? Do you have a friend who's also a farmer? Can we meet him now? Oh, my brother's a farmer. Oh, my brother owns a mill. Oh, can we go to your brother's mill now? We just kept doing that for like, I think four or five days. And then after a week of doing that, we sort of got an idea of the situation on the ground. And then that helped us because then we can go back and then we can analyze. All right. So what sort of business can we develop? What sort of model can we develop for it? And that's when the farmers told us the solar bubble was not solar bubble was not what they wanted because the capacity was too low. They wanted a biomass power plant, which was much, much bigger, which we had heard about but never really studied. So then we were like, okay, who manufactures it? Can we meet the manufacturer? <laughs> All right. Can we meet someone who has used it before? And they were like, yes, you can meet. There's this region in the world, that region in our country which uses it. It's like 12 hours away. And I'm like, okay, the next time we come back, we're going to visit that. And that's honestly how we started. That's how we changed the technology we were using. Like we also changed, we also had to swap the business model. We went from a buy and sell model to a paper use, like a laundromat model. And we changed the technology from the solar bubble to a biomass powered dryer. And yeah, so a, a lot of things were fluid and changing, but it only we could only be confident on those changes because we had a picture of what was going on. And I believe you're also charging them for storing the rice as well, taking a percentage off. Uh, so that actually came at the exactly. end when we when after subsequent visits, we also realized, oh, okay, after you dry, you can store and people do store it. Farmers do want to store it. So you see, like every time we visit, there'll be new information coming out. And I guess that's the point of engaging with them, engaging with the stakeholders to understand the, the challenges they face, not just the challenges, but to understand their day-to-day lives. We realized that education is super important to them. Why? Because every house we went into, the first photos you see are huge pictures of their kids graduating. So we know that that's deeply relevant to them. So maybe a way would be to speak to their kids first because we, we spoke to some children of farmers and they were like, yeah, like I want my dad to have this. If my dad doesn't listen to you, like tell me, <laughs> I will speak to him. And, and then and then I asked them, but how sure you, your dad will listen to you? Then if I want, they will want. That kind of thing. Now I was like, okay. I was like, okay, that's interesting. But you know, you don't see this. You know, a lot of people who are designing policies might not know this. It's normally a gap that's overlooked. Children of farmers, women farmers even, is overlooked in policy research. It's a well-known thing. Well, I imagine just even getting to these places must have been an adventure and it isn't the most straightforward of ways. Yes. So the 12-hour journey I talked about. So what would happen was that we had two options. Either we fly to the capital city and take a 12-hour drive or we fly to the capital city, fly to another city and then take a five-hour drive. So we were like, we might as well just take the 12-hour drive. And let me tell you, have you, if you ever took 12 hours on the road... <laughs> It's a very funny feeling between being tired and not tired because you're simultaneously exhausted and rested at the same time. Thankfully, there are toilet breaks along the way. But what happened was that we landed, I think, in the morning and we were due to arrive at midnight. So with breaks in between, we were driving along the roads and everything was fine. But at about like 11 p.m., suddenly the person who was driving us started checking the dashboard and then like started pressing button here and there. Then later, that was the first red flag. And he started speaking to the scientists that were following us in like a worried tone, a hushed worried tone. 
And then like the second red flag, <laughs> third red flag was that he stopped the car <laughs> and he walked out, opened the bonnet, fiddled with something, closed it and walked back and started driving again. And then later did that again. <laughs> and then after the third red flag, I was like, hey, um, is everything all right? Basically what happened was the car was overheating. There was a coolant that was that had run out. So what he was trying to do was to see how far he could push the engine without the coolant, but it wasn't very far because it, it gets overheated very fast. And so then what he tried was, he was like, okay, we have to put water. So he basically brought us to this well. And this is like in the middle of the night at 11.30 a.m. And it's not even in like the capital city, right? It's like jungle. It's like, you know, country roads, like if you're traveling in like going up to Penang, like Perak, Kelantan, like all these very rural areas like where the plantations are it's like that and so we went to uh, a well and he basically dropped water into like our empty water bottles and he was like you will pour inside this thing then i was like okay so we poured inside out i was like okay we closed it and we drove now the thing is that okay i'm no expert but coolants are not like water right it's like something else that has i think a high, very much higher boiling point so the water boils damn fast and it runs out damn fast. I think like within five minutes, it'll be gone. So how far can you get in five minutes, right? And so what we had to do was he would be like, okay, five minutes to the next well. And then if we know that it's going to be more than five minutes, we need to fill up a lot of empty bottle so that we can keep on filling up with water. And I think we did that for 30 minutes. And after that, he was just like, nope, engine dead. <laughs> like he sort of gave up because as we were going up a hill, I remember as he was going up a hill, the engine started sputtering. He just turned it off because he was like, it's not going to work. We're not going to be able to cross this hill. And then he turned around as we were going up the hill and just sort of like slowly like rolled down. And he just stopped at the side of the road in the jungle. And it was like jungle on both sides. There was like this one house that was dark. I don't think it was a house. I think it was a shop or something like that. It was, but it was dark. It was closed. It was made out of wood. And he was like, okay, we, we just maybe stop here since there's a chair so we can sit down. And we got a call for help. <laughs> then I was like, okay, so let's call for help. We called the police. We called the ERI, the International Rice Research Institute. We called the, so they had, we had rented a car. So we called the rental company. We called the hotel we were supposed to go to at 12. And they all responded that the hotel and the police couldn't come and get us. They didn't know where we were. And the people in the capital city, so like the Erie and the rental company, they were like, yeah, we can get to you, but we have to send another car and it's going to take them like 11 hours to get to you. Because, you know, it took us 11 hours to get here, right? Uh, and I was like, don't you have like a branch in the other city, in the other capital road? <laughs> and then other, other like cities and they were like, oh no, we don't really have anyone who can help us. Not at this late hour. I was like, oh, then we were like preparing to sleep in the car. And it was quite horrible because I, I remember I was like, wow, it was particularly horrible for me because... I remember I wanted to use the toilet and I was like, this is a bad idea. Like, I was like, oh my God, it's, everything is like dark and jungle. It, it just feels like anything can happen. And for the first time, right, I think one of the scientists who were following us was like, I've done a lot of field visits, but this is the first time I'm stuck in the middle of the night and no one can help me. Um, so I was like, okay, okay. But luckily what happened, it turned out was that she called her sister and her sister actually uh, worked in that region before. So she knew a Hulu of a village, so like the leader of a village, of a farming village actually, who lived only like an hour away. And so the guy was like, okay, I'm going to take my four-wheel drive, my truck, and I'm going to drive to where your sister and her friends are. And so they actually, thankfully, they came about an hour later and we basically piled on and they drove us the last hour back. And it was very surreal because it was like an open air truck. So we had sit at the back and it was like midnight, right? And it's like jungle all around. So it's nature sounds all around. And we would just be looking up to the sky and I would be, what do you call that? 
I'll be like looking at my teammates and be like, can you imagine a couple of like months ago, we are like in university and like now we're like, traveling in like a forest that of a country we've only visited twice. And for some of us, it's the first time. And now we're on, on our way, you know, we're not stuck. We don't have to sleep the night in the van with people we don't know and like we've never met before and who could be taking us to our doom. I don't know. <laughs> but but we trust them implicitly. And it was very surreal and it was a bit of a moment I'll never forget. And I imagine the kind of people that you were meeting, so they were also very fascinated with who you guys were. And there were girls following Kishum as well. Oh, that story. <laughs> uh, it, it was quite unique to meet us because they don't get as so uh, they don't get as many visitors. But what happened was this is a funny story. This actually happened in our third visit. So at that time in the accelerator where we were in the help price half of us went back to meet to go to the farms and half of us stayed in London so I stayed in London apparently when they went to the village this time around there was a local university who happened to be in town and there was like a festival that they were having so what happened was that they actually asked our team do you guys want to give a speech you want to talk about your work and then they were like, yeah, sure, why not? And they were like, oh, who, to who? Oh, just a couple of, a couple of university students. So like, they were like, okay, okay. They said, yeah, we'll contact you tomorrow morning. The next day they go there and they see this stage built in front of the farmer's house. I was like, what is going on? And they see like four chairs like on the stage. I was like, what? And like, there's these rows and rows and rows of chairs in the audience. And then suddenly they, hit, they see this mass of like motorcycles coming in and like trucks and the van and like people park there and then like everyone starts crowding in. And it's like a full-on event. So then they come up and I wasn't there, but the story that Vanny told me was like, oh, you know, she said like, there's this bunch of girls sitting in front of Kisum. And I think there was a question where they asked, do you have a girlfriend? And he was shocked by it. He said no. And then they started to laugh. And then Vanny apparently threw him under the bus because she walked over to them after that and she'd be like, you want his Facebook? And then... <laughs> And they all said, yes, yes, yes. And they started like taking photos of his profile to add him. And we had a prank call once, actually. Someone called him once uh, and he picked up and he was like, hello. And, and then there was like silence. And then suddenly you hear like a lot of giggles. And then they ended the call. He was like, what? And we were like, oh, wow. Like, this is interesting. I remember like our Facebook likes jumped significantly. <laughs> but that was just like a funny side story that happened in our journeys. Yeah. That's brilliant. So after you did all that, you know, you visited Amima for the first time, you came back in the summer, you had this global accelerator that you mentioned before, and it was at the former residence of Henry VIII. What was the mm -hmm. purpose of gathering all of you? I think there were around 200 of you guys there. What was the whole purpose? So the accelerator in our year was the first year they actually, the uh, hot price expanded the accelerator round. So previously it would have been everyone who won the regionals would go to the finals because there were only six regionals and they had an accelerator, but the accelerator was really only to, for those six teams to accelerate their growth basically. But that year they decided, you know, since we had a lot more regionals and we had a lot more teams that they felt could also benefit and could also be a contender. It doesn't just have to be the winner of the regionals. So they decided to open the accelerator to about 40 teams. So they had 25 regional rounds because they were expanding more people participating. And there are like 10 people who came in through online applications from the pool of people who didn't win. And then like, I think another 15 from another like special like national rounds or something. So what happened was that all these people had like won already like a regional. So they were like the best of the best. And what they wanted to do was that they wanted to make the accelerator in, in itself its own like round as well. So they wanted to create out of the 40 teams, only six would go to the finals. 
which was why UCL was also like, can you guys do it? <laughs> can you guys go the distance? Uh, it's going to be very intense because it's like a six week long tournament. But the idea was to accelerate us, to give us a live, work, play environment where we could just focus. And the reason they chose a location away from everything, it's a bit like how what the WEF does, you know, at Davos, where they choose like people, a secluded location. So you're forced to focus more. And they will fly in experts from all around the world to come and give talks, to come and give time and office hours, mentors from all over the place. You just sit there and you just work with, and you just meet these 200 other people, some of which are still our friends today. And it was really an experience that you cannot replicate. We will never re- be able to relive it, even if I go back right now, because you can't participate in it. It's just uh, a different experience. I imagine as Asians, you must have really worked very, very, very hard. And <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, definitely. Was that the life at the place? So we. <laughs> We were actually known as like that super Asian team that works super hard or something like that because we were one of the only Asian teams or like the only Southeast, we're definitely the only Southeast Asian team or the only East Asian team there. And we basically, I guess we played into the stereotype about working super hard because we would spend most of our days in our room working and we would book the time with the mentors that we wanted to meet because we really wanted to focus. So like we went for the talks that we wanted to learn something from, but there were some talks where we were like, it would be good to know, but we don't need all of us to be there. So we sent one person to write notes. We just take the notes, like so Asian. Um, and they were like, you guys just want to come here and just like milk all the information. <laughs> I was like, I was like, but that's the point, right? <laughs> when you're trying to give us the info. <laughs> and then, um, and we would basically try to attract the mentors to our rooms instead of going out so that we don't waste time. We had this like corner, we put a chair, put like tables, we bought snacks, fruits and things like that. So that's how the mentors actually come to the room and like, oh, wow, you have snacks, you have fruits for me. And they just sit there <laughs> and they just start doing their work and chatting and then they will over run their time and give us more time but they really partied a lot and we actually missed out on a lot of the parties because we were so busy working we were so tired but we well, we decided you know we can party too and we honestly wanted to show everyone like a good time because we also wanted to remember right we were lucky enough to be the, one of the only team we were actually the only team from london or who had lived in london before right? the other uk team was from other parts of the uk so we thought what if we threw a house party in london there's so many parties in the castle but like, there's no party in London. They always take every opportunity to get to visit London because for most of them, it's their first time being in the UK. So I was like, one of our team members had a place in London, which was quite big and quite nice. And we could host a small like house party there. So we actually did that on like the fi- the week right before the accelerator ended, before the final week and the weekend. And I would say we partied a bit too hard. At one point, some guy who walked into the apartment building following our crowd that I don't think was supposed to be there. I think it was like a stranger or something like that. We found out later that he broke something and then they blamed it on us. But it, it got a bit too crazy at one point i think because like, i think it was like 3 a.m people were still going at it strong like dancing in the living room and we were like okay <laughs> maybe it's time to like clear people out and the thing is that i think everyone was too tired that they couldn't actually get to the castle back because the castle was out of london right so it's an hour away so not everyone can actually make it back so everyone basically started finding their own little space on the living room to sleep in the couch underneath the tables on the sofas mats mattresses but it was a really fun night And that had actually had the unexpected effect. During the final rounds of the presentation, Hot Press has this very good concept where when the judges debate or like deliberate, before they go into the deliberation room, 
they will turn around and the audience will be... So how, how it works is like this. They will always split you into groupings when you present. They will always select one or two best from like each grouping. And what will happen is that you will be the audience for the grouping that you're not in so that you don't feel you need to say... Because what will happen is that they will ask for peer feedback. So the judges will always actively ask for peer feedback. And the reason they put it like that is so that you don't give bad feedback because you feel threatened by like, oh, this thing is very good. So then you purposely should talk them. So, but because it's like different rooms, you know that they have no implication on you. So they ask for peer feedback and in the regionals or campus rounds, it's very quick. But in the castle, they can actually ask a lot more. Be like, look, you guys have lived with them for literally six weeks. If they invest in them, who do you think is going to invest? How are they like as people? Blah, blah, blah. So that, that party had the inadvertent effect where everyone would say, look, this rising team, they work super, super hard. They're definitely going to pull it off. And then they were like, but how are they as people? Oh, they're super fun as people as well. <laughs> and like, you know, they're super nice. They're super fun, but they also work super hard. <laughs> and, and so it started to actually tick some boxes that we weren't aware of because we honestly just started like, you know, like, okay, like we also want to have some fun. I want to remember it. It was a very fun experience that we'll never forget. That's so funny. I love that you managed to build such strong ties while being the most hardworking team. And the whole connection thing is so important what you did, right? You guys started, you have no connections with the country, with agriculture, but you had to start building the connections with people. A lot of people who are just starting on a problem, they'll be like, how do I even start to get connected with those who are in the industry, the really high ranking, very knowledgeable people? What was your advice, if you were? How do you reach out? So... How we reached out was, to be honest, I think you have to be smart about how you reached out to it, how you do it. You have to also sort of understand what appeals to that person. Everyone will have an interest. It's about how can you appeal to their interest, right? It doesn't have to be their job. It can be their job that you're interested in, but it can be something else. Like maybe they like this sport or maybe they like this particular kind of food or they are also from the same university as you, or their son is from the same university, or something like that. You need to find a similar point. That's the first. And the second thing is, what we were quite lucky because HotPrice, they have developed a platform that is very easily marketable because they have like UN, Bill Clinton, 1 million. So if you leverage it properly, you actually get into a lot of rooms, you know, because you say, oh yeah, I'm about to present to, I'm participating in, I don't know, Bill Clinton's competition that he's looking to give a million dollars to one of us and we're one of the contenders. So if you help us, then, you know, you can be part of the journey, that kind of thing. And most of the time, people might not care, but they might, some people actually will open the email and they'll read it. At worst, they will just direct it to someone. And that's how we started. I think, honestly, the secret is just to be brave. And I like to have this mindset to think like, okay, this person is behind the door and in, of this building, but the main entrance isn't the only way you can get into this building. Your, the purpose is just you want to get into this building. So that's your mindset. Nothing will stop you. You're just going to find all different ways. The fire escape, the, the window, the main entrance, the, the back door. And once you get in and you speak to that person, that's all you want to do, right? You will get in eventually. So I think that is something that I learned. You just have to have that mindset of nothing is going to really stop me. I'm not going to be deterred. I really want to meet you because I know what value I can bring to you and I know what value you can bring to me. And I think it'll be great if we can collaborate. So I want my opportunity to tell it to you. And I think you also look at your own personal network, right? Your granddad helped to reach out to his friends who were farmers 30 years back and connected. Yeah, you. yeah. So like that was very surprised. My granddad spoke to one of his friends who owned a mill and was in the rice business for the past 30 years. One day he just called me and like, 
thinking, oh, uh, yeah, the guy say, can meet you when you want to go. <laughs> and I was like, oh, really? They say, yeah, yeah, we can drive together to Kedah now. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. I think it's also about making it known to your friends and family what you're doing, who you want to meet, because you never know who might know someone or who might know someone who might know someone. And just be diligent on following up on that. And don't be afraid to explore because even some of my friends, right, from the president of the MSOC that got me the internship, I asked him and he was like, yeah, I actually have a family friend who sells machinery in the agriculture space. Let me go and ask him. And I called his cousin and I called the cousin's friend and, and, and we did actually meet him. We actually went to his facility and saw the machine being produced and, and things like that. And still keep in touch with him today. He also have very surprising connections as well. So this happened just before the UN final presentation in September, where you oh. were all practicing your pitch before going onto the final pitch. And then you met a security guard who basically helped to win the competition for you. How did that happen? So <laughs> I always feel that if I could write a <laughs> book about one day of my life will probably be that one day about the the UN finals because so many things happened in that one day share that day with us <laughs> all right to really give context I have to give context about the day before so the day before we had the rehearsals before we had presented to the, to the finals one of our mentors she told us that your presentation that helped you get into the finals is great it's a good presentation it's a solid presentation but do you want to present a solid presentation to the youth finals because you only have one shot at it? You want to present it to Bill Clinton or do you want to present the most audacious, most boldest plan that you can think of that will like, I don't know, will literally change the face of rice forever? Whether you can execute it or not in real life is another story. But you, you can put in the work to show how you're going to do it and have sufficient evidence to convince people that, that you can actually do it then you will actually be able to do it because then they will believe in you and give you the resources to do it. And so do you want to present the boldest plan you can? So we decided, okay, yes, we present the boldest, most audacious plan that we can ever dream of. That also meant redoing everything that we did in the past two, three months in the accelerator in one, two weeks. So our presentation was totally new, totally revamped, was crazy, but we were still seven minutes long. Our I remember our presentation was seven minutes long and we had to be six minutes for the finals. So when we went for the rehearsal the day before, there was like this team which is supposed to help do our mics because you are not allowed to mess up. Like there can be no technical errors at the UN because you just can't. Like you cannot be like, oops, let me flip back back my previous slide. So actually what happens is it's quite cool. You don't actually have a clicker. You have a clicker that sends a signal to a person and that person then changes your slide so that you cannot accidentally flip back and forth. And you have to go through with that person your slide so that he knows exactly when to change it for you so that he can tell if it's like you're making a mistake. And when I was talking to a person, they were like, yeah, they do it for the Olympics. And he was talking like, yeah, I, you know, like help Mariah Carey run her concert or Rihanna run a concert. Like that. So, like, okay, well. so we were practicing with them and all the teams had their slots, right? to practice everything was well polished super bang on six minutes and then we came in and we practiced and we were like they were like stop it's time and then they were like oh we still have like a minute to go and then they were like what you have seven minutes then i was like yeah okay. then we asked them, do you have any suggestions for us to cut down then they were like maybe talk faster <laughs> and then we were like can we try again and then they were like okay so it became like a pitch practice section when it was supposed to be like them just doing a tech run and they were like okay good luck you guys have a lot of work to do then we were like yeah yeah we know we know then they were like yeah good luck okay tomorrow and we went off so we, we, we continued working blah, blah blah the next day i remember we woke up and the first thing that happened was we have been practicing late into the night and we finally got it down to i remember six minutes 
15 seconds. <laughs> and we were like, that this stubborn 15 seconds won't go away because like we really don't know where else to cut. And we're like, okay, no, don't worry. We have the whole day 15, but we have to get to the UN on time because there's a lot of security procedures. So went through our morning routine and then suddenly Kisa messages us and he said, look, hey guys, the first dryer has been built and they are, they are going to harvest soon. So we're going to have like our first customer either today or tomorrow. And then I was like, oh, wow. Then we actually looked at the machine, that 20K that we raised and went into building it. For the first time, we could actually see it on the very day we were going for UN. So I'm like, okay, okay, wow, this is good. We should go. We walk into the UN. And in the UN, because it's where a lot of important diplomats go, right? And Hot Press happens the week before the UN uh, Global Goals Week. So there's a lot, a lot of diplomats. So like even Mahate was there. I think he was there about three days after the finals. So a lot of people were flying in. So security was very tight and it's always very tight. So you, it's like airport like that. You have to go through multiple body scans. They'll scan your bags, everything. You're only allowed to bring a couple of things and everyone has to be registered before. So that means that they need to do background checks on you. And then we walked in and then we realized that Vanny's name was spelled wrong. So we were like, oh no. And then they were like, stop. <laughs> they're like, she cannot move past this point. They were like, what? And then she cannot, they, they basically didn't let her in. Then we're like, how are we supposed to present with three people? Like we can't just, like you know, can't just have four and then suddenly become three, right? And then the organizers was like, okay, okay, we'll talk to them. And then they basically said that they're going to have to do like a background check on her, like emergency to make sure she's like, you know, not affiliated to a terrorist or something. And I was like, no, she's not. <laughs> and then we were three men in basically at the UN. And according to her, I don't know the full story, but according to her, she had to go to this room apparently where she saw like, you know, workings of like the central place where like they were typing in. And then she was with the undersecretary general or the DEPSEC gen who was like there. And he was like, chat her with her, like, you know, like became like buddies throughout the day because she was, they were like, oh, so it's like, what are you in here for? And then she was like, I think you guys got to do a background check on me. I was like, ah, <laughs> he was like, you know, um, in the end, he actually gave her his card. And he was like, if you ever in New York, you can like hit me up. <laughs> and then I was like, whoa. Um, but what happened was, so then we, we went in. Okay, we didn't panic, but we had to do like a bit of formatting. I'm like, okay, what if she actually cannot present? Like, what do we have to do? Then we did the tech run and we were cutting our script. I remember in the dressing room, right? All the other teams were like, are you editing your slides now? Like, aren't you supposed to have submitted them already yesterday? And they were like, oh yeah, they're giving us a final chance to submit it right before the tech run. So we submitted it right before our tech run. And then we did the tech run. And I remember we were six minutes, one second. And I remember the, the tech person was like, they were like, I don't know how you guys did it, but you guys managed to cut it in with still roughly the same story. <laughs> uh, and then I was like, yeah, a lot of work. And then because suddenly we were like, oh, actually, we just realized we missed out our team slide. So like we were not introducing our team, which was like a major thing that we also so like, can we put in another very they were like, No, you can't anymore. Like we've already given it to them. Like there's no way you guys just gonna have to deal with it. They were like, Oh crap. So we actually presented funnily enough, it meant that in the UN we actually presented our second latest, not our latest like. So with nothing else to do, we practice. We practice, practice, practice. And Vanny actually came in uh, a couple of hours before. Uh, we were like, oh, thank God. And then as we were practicing, we, in the dressing room, there was this security guy at the UN that you spoke about. He watched us. He was like, why are these two Asian kids like speaking to a wall, not speaking to each other? Um, and then we basically told him, would you like to listen to our presentation? And then he was like, yeah, sure. So we brought our laptops, we presented to him. And then we asked him if he had any questions. And he asked us a question about what would we do with the ash from our biomass powered dryers? Because it basically was powered by a rice husk, wasted byproduct of the milling stage in the rice supply chain. So we, we told him, oh, we had sort of heard that it could be used for other uses, like maybe fertilizer. And then he was like, exactly. And then he explained to us, this is why. 
it's a good source of potassium, it's a good source of this chemical, this is how you convert it into fertilizers, and it's been done in blah, blah, blah. And we were like, whoa, how do you know all this? And he was like, I'm a security guard here at the UN, but back in Nigeria, where I'm from, I have a master's in agriculture science. And then we were like, wow, okay. I remember rushing back to my teammates and be like, okay, write this down now in case they ever ask. And they did ask at the UN later on, like I think one or second or third question, it came up and we just recited word for word for that presentation. I never saw that guy again. I would love to. I never saw it. We didn't even catch his name. I, I can't even remember what he looks like now, which is quite sad. But yeah, so you really don't know what's going to happen. That is a wild story. I watched that final presentation and I was just stunned. You could see the shim on what you guys did. You had a huge panel of judges and the FAQ was just judge after judge after judge, just throwing all these random questions at you after you won. Like, what was the feeling? Like, What do you guys do? I think simultaneously, it was extreme amounts of joy and surprise. Also disbelief. And at the same time, there was also a little bit of relief. Because it was finally, after a year, it was finally over. And we couldn't believe it. I think there's a photo of us, very funnily, when we were shaking hands with Bill Clinton, where I'm like bowing to him. And like one of my friends, she actually looked so shocked that she put her hand on her heart or something like that while she was shaking hands with him. So it was really just raw, emotional glee and joy. And it was just like photo after photo. And you just saw in disbelief. Right. When you were walking around and everyone was congratulating you and we were thanking a lot of people and we, people always want to take advantage of the networking. But honestly, we were in a daze and we were walking around and people were talking to us. And I remember answering them, telling them thank you and shaking hands with them. And at one point, I remember the trophy actually got a bit heavy and I had to keep holding it because people want to keep taking photos. So I would tell them, you want to hold it? <laughs> and then they were like, yes, yes. And then, so <laughs> it ended up, I'll be like, keep passing it to the next person, the next person, the next person. And and on that note, right, the Q&A that you watched, right, there's actually a part they didn't film where after the judges deliberated, right, there's the callback. So while everyone is eating dinner and everything, right, they call us back and that's where they will go at you in the room. For the questions for you. Oh yeah, a lot. It was a lot. I think it was half an hour. I, I remember because I was in the washroom and then suddenly someone came into the washroom like, Lincoln, Lincoln, are you here? And then I was like, yeah, yeah, what's up? They're like, we've got to go now. Like, oh, okay, okay. Why? The judges are asking for us. I'm like, huh? Really? And then like, yeah, yeah. Like, we've got to go. Like, prepare to answer like a lot of questions. They're like, okay, okay. And then we went in and then just question after question after question. It was like a firing squad. But I think over there, the judges, they can ask a lot more because it's like a closed room, right? And then there are more, you get judges like walking around the room and like throwing questions at you. And that's where they really, really make the decision because it's part of the deliberation. They want to find out more. That's when people like Ariana Huffington were also joining in as well, I think, remotely mm-hmm. asking questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Bill Clinton would come in at the end <laughs> or something like that. So we didn't get to meet him in that Q&A session, but we got to meet him after that. And so you had all those craziness, you're running adrenaline. How did you end up getting stuck in the US? Ah, right. So after the whole thing ended, we were going back to the dressing rooms and we were with another team, uh, a team that we were eventually going to share uh, accommodation with. We went back there, we packed up all of our stuff and everything was like all over the place. And I remember we packed up all our stuff and I was like, oh, it's finally over. Congrats, guys. You know, good job, team. And our team and their team was like sitting down and we fell asleep on the tables there, literally like that. And we woke up later and it was an hour later. And so it was like midnight and we were like, oh crap, it's dark. I don't know why, but apparently no one thought of going to the dressing room to check. Maybe because they thought that everyone had already cleared out because everyone was coming down from the, where the reception was. So I think they were more concerned about clearing out the reception. And everyone thought we had just gone. So uh, and we walked out and we were like, okay, there's still some lights on. 
So maybe it's still okay. We saw some people way in the distance when we were coming down the elevator and they were pushing something. They were like, those are maintenance people. Okay. Huh. Anyway, let's just go. Lah. Okay, so we walked through the main entrance and then we realized, are the main entrance shut? Okay, maybe we can just push it open. So we go there and we realize that it's not just shut, shut. It's like properly shut. The UN has bank vault doors, uh, like a feet thick of steel doors, like you see in the movies, you know, like those round rotating. And I was like, whoa, like you can't open this one. Then I was like, wow, okay, we are properly stuck. So, and we were so exhausted, we were so stuck, right? And we were at the main foyer of the UN. I remember, because we're carrying so many bags, we were like, okay, let's just put our bags down. So we put our bags down. I remember one or two people actually lying on the floor. <laughs> and it was like still open, openly bright. And then we were like, we're stuck at the UN at night. And I was like, <laughs> then someone was like, do you want to like explore? <laughs> like, do you want to like go and explore? Because we didn't get a chance. Then I was like, hmm yeah sure why not we walk down the corridors and see so we saw like the UNGA chambers ecosop chambers through the windows and stuff like that and we saw like all the placards and the you know where you see in all the movies all the mics and stuff and I was like, wow so this is where they actually do it and then and i remember that in the entrance there was this huge staircase going up and there's this rope no entry <laughs> for the public i remember we had this like quick debate should we or should we not <laughs> should we or should we not because they were always security guards but right now there's nobody and they were like are we gonna like stumble upon some international secret meeting going on up there or not you know <laughs> but we decided not to <laughs> because we didn't want to get arrested we called the hot prize team members like the global team organizers and he facetimed us i remember because he was in his hotel and then he was like, about to go to sleep. He was like, yeah, congrats, guys. What do you want? Then I was like, hi. So funny story, but like, we're stuck at the UN. And then he was like, <laughs> he started laughing. He was like, ha, 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 you're drunk. Then I was like, no, 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 no. I'm serious. Then I was like, come on. He was like, it's not my first prank. You know, <laughs> I was like, no, I'm, I'm serious. Then he was like, really? You're actually stuck? Then I was like, yes. Was like, okay, okay turn on your camera and show me around first and then I was like okay I turned it around then he, he saw around he started he saw like started laughing a bit like you guys are actually stuck in there then I was like yes can you get us out and he was like okay okay let me make a few calls <laughs> and then he was like hi guys and everyone was like hello can you get us out and so he was like okay let, let me make a few calls so he called someone but apparently we were found by security guards because they basically saw us wandering around the corridors in the, in the, on the ca camera and they were like, why are there like a bunch of students walking around the corridors in the middle of the night when it's supposed to be sealed already? So they quickly got us like, yeah, yeah, please go out. <laughs> and like, here's the entrance. So we went out and that wasn't the end of the day, actually, because there was an after party. We were so tired. We were like, we are the winners. We can't not go to the after party. So we went to the after party. It was quite fun. But honestly, I just remember being so tired and we've never slept so deeply after that, I remember. But yeah, that was an uh, end to an interesting day. Incredible. But let's not forget that you were still students, actually. So how were you balancing this entire year prepping for the competition with your studies? And then you ended up getting a first class with your degree, which I find is incredible because you managed to have all these other things going on at the same time. How do you balance it? So I think for us, while we were preparing for a hot price, in the lead up to it, it wasn't actually as intense as one might think. It's similar to running like a club right being involved in a university extracurricular so we sort of balanced it where 
we rested from our studies by working on rising and rested from rising by working on our studies. And it was still okay. What was really fun was when summer started and UCL's exams actually end quite early. So we actually got like extra months in the summer. And I remember like as soon as my exams finished, we flew back immediately. I think within two days. Oh no, we went for that, that competition I spoke about. Then later, as soon as that was done, we flew back. And so we had like a whole month extra added to our summer to really, really start on this. But it was honestly quite a challenge, I think, at the end. Because if you think about what we did at the end, it was, I think, close to five months since we had studied. I left my final exam not having gone to Myanmar. I came back to UCL having won the whole prize. We hadn't even gone to the accelerator at that point. So all the things that we had experienced, it was just a totally different world. I came a month late into my third year. And when I sat down for the first time and went for a lecture again, I was like, this is so different. <laughs> like, it was just so surreal, was so different. And I think what the decision we made after in our final year was that it was actually got became quite a struggle to juggle both. So we made the decision to, in the middle of that year, to take a break from rising and finish our studies first. That's where we actually really sat down and cracked on our studies and worked really hard and applied some of the techniques we had learned running our business onto our studies in order to get the best results. But what we, the techniques? Then, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just like studying techniques. Are like At the end of the day, right, we knew where our expertise lies. So we had some modules that we could take, which were more business-oriented, like life science, business and life sciences, our projects had to be something we knew how to tackle it in a more systematic way. Like, okay, we want to prove A, B, and C. How do we actually do it in real life? Most people do it theoretically, but since we have experience piloting, we can also pilot in real life. How do I take an exam, which I know that the information is all over the place and too much for me to digest, but I still need to score. You know, the lecturers are still human. They also follow certain patterns, certain topics they like more. So can you study those topics more in depth? Things like this. And it actually became easier to study because we had sort of done something that was a bit more, I guess, more challenging than just studying and taking an exam. So studying and taking an exam became more of like, okay, we know the answer to A is B. In business and running your own startup, the answer to A is not going to be B. But in some of your exams, there will be a situation like that. So it became more of like, okay, we just need to focus and do it. And then that's how we, we did it. We took a break, we finished our studies, graduated, and then we started rising full-time. So you graduated, you started Rice Inc. with $1 million. What was the plan? Now you were going to do it for real. I think the first plan that we realized was we had to then started consulting a lot because now they are investors and they've invested in our company. So they also have an idea of what they want us to do. And they correctly spoke with us and identified that a part of the supply chain they wanted to tackle was the end consumer. The farmer has a great product. You've helped him make his rice better quality, reduce the waste, more environmentally friendly. It doesn't matter if he can't sell it for a higher value. How do you get that higher value? So we started to enter the F&B market, merchanting our rice in the UK, leveraging on all of our networks and low-hanging fruits there. And that was a totally new industry, totally new experience as well. We had to learn a lot in the past two years to understand how do we tackle that market. We also you know, made a couple of mistakes early on because we are not business students. So we didn't know like, okay, what's the procedure to set up a company? How do I set it up legally? How do I set it up accounting-wise? What is tax? Simple questions. It's not that we're unaware of them. We just don't have the knowledge because we never encountered it in Biomed. So we have to learn all of that as we went along. Were you not tempted to set up back home in Southeast Asia where it's closer to the production? So we did set up in uh, Malaysia as well. But I think what we realized was that at the time, the opportunity in UK was lower hanging for us. We wanted to capture it because of the price, right? We had gotten into a lot of very influential networks 
and we were speaking to a lot of people who could, if they came in and they said that, yes, I will support you, it would have made all the difference because they have the power at the end of the supply chain. These are like major corporations who can then put a pressure on the supply chain, incentivize farmers to basically be more sustainable, incentivize supply chain to be more ethical. It's a bit like fair trade where you needed Starbucks to come in to tell the fair trade farmers that I, I want your fair trade coffee. And if you can prove to me it's fair trade coffee, then you can sell to me. I'm Starbucks. And all the farmers then started to you know move towards it. No one really wanted to go against Starbucks. So yeah, it's that concept. But surely you must have run into issues like Brexit, for instance. That must have been a big deal to just figure out how it could impact you and having it actually come into play as well. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So... Thankfully for us, yeah, I had an economist on our team who was like trying to predict what will happen. I'll try to do justice to his logic. So he was like telling me, okay, so for Brexit to happen, the UK needs to be more protectionist, right? They want to protect their domestic industries. However, they would also want to benefit from all the trade that's happening in other countries. So they would be signing a lot of trade agreements with countries individually that they didn't have to in the beginning because the EU would have signed it. But now they're not part of the EU, they would protect industries that are local to them. And then he was like, so if they become more protectionist, but they won't be more protectionist for rice because they don't grow rice. So in that sense, they would want to incentivize rice to come in. So what they would do is they would either sign an agreement to maintain the incentives that rice producing countries get for bringing rice into the EU, or they will make it more attractive for the UK specifically. They won't make it less attractive. They will probably make it less attractive for crops that they grow themselves because they want to protect local British farmers, but rice is not one of them. And that was his prediction. I was like, are you sure? <laughs> because there's this whole debate going around like what's going to happen in Brexit, right? But it turned out his prediction was correct. And the UK's tariffs are actually lower rice. And it actually helped us because it, it then meant that more goods could come in. We had an easier time getting into the UK. And how did you end up getting into the top five caterer distributors and meeting with the board? So that was something that Kisim and I sort of stumbled upon. So before COVID happened, we actually managed to get them very interested in our product. We managed to get one of them to pilot our product. And how we did it was we would basically join a lot of business networks. And once we had a pilot, we would basically request that the caterer, it's normally not as easy to get into a distribution network because they get pitched a lot of different products with a lot of different suppliers all the time. So how you stand out sometimes we thought was that if we got the caterer, i.e. their client, to basically pitch us, it would be more powerful because the client would be like, oh, I want to use these guys. Can you like stop them? And so we tried that. We thought, okay, it was quite successful in a small way with the pilot. So can we make it larger? Can we find the larger distributor from this pilot client we have and ask them, hey, we think it'd be more convenient if you stop us so that we can deliver to this client of yours. And they just thought, like, okay, yeah, should we put you on a wait list? <laughs> that kind of stuff. And we were like, it's fine, it's fine. We're on a wait list. Good. Then the next thing that happened was that we actually went to an event where it was like a business networking event. And in one day, we met three or four of the largest caterers as well as food service clients, as well as their clients. So the sites they were catering for. So we got them interested and Kisum actually said, yeah, yeah, we're on the wait list for this major distributor. So you don't have to like do much. You can just ask them about us. And the thing is probably like a huge distribution company. So they're like a lot of players. So we're probably on some list somewhere. It's just like on a list on the computer database. But then what happened is that all these catering companies went back and it actually did what Kisum said, which was like they emailed the distributor asking, oh, hey, do you have these guys? So we plan to stop them. And then suddenly we have gotten emails from these people to like, blah, blah, blah. Would you like to come in to speak with us? And we were like, 
Sure. <laughs> and and they were very happy to stock us. They even wanted us to be exclusive. And that's sort of how we got into a lot of these catering companies. Unfortunately, COVID through a spanner that works. And so we're hoping that it'll recover our post-COVID in the same way that it was again. And how has COVID impacted what you're doing as well? Because you were in London and now you're in Malaysia. I think COVID really impacted us initially in our B2B segment. So a lot of the clients we were speaking to, because it's not a good environment for them to onboard new suppliers when they are like closed, that part sort of had to shut down. We adapted by trying to sell it direct to consumers and getting onto Amazon. And that was reasonably successful, but it's a lot of work, a lot of marketing work, but we're starting to see the results of the work right now. So we're thankful for that. I think in terms of the farms as well, I think the most annoying thing for us right now is that we cannot go there. We, we cannot visit anybody. We, we couldn't go to Myanmar. We can't go to any villages we wanted to work in Malaysia. And I think right now, this year, what we're doing is actually we started to realize that our initial assumptions three years ago in Hawk Price was that, yes, not every farmer in Malaysia needs what we're bringing, but there are still some communities that actually do need what we're bringing. They do need our dryers and maybe not just our dryers, but other things, right? They need access to markets. They need different kinds of agri-tech technologies. And so we actually spoke to a lot of players in Malaysia to try and see what we could do with them to develop projects with them. But it's always been hampered because we can't actually physically go there. And my team has been like, I cannot believe I've been doing this online with you for like the past 10 months. I haven't seen Kisum for a year physically. I just hope that we get to go to a farm. <laughs> like some of my team members are like, I joined this because I really wanted to go to a farm. I really hope I get to go to a farm before I leave. Um, and I'm like, yeah, I, I I want to go too. It makes a difference when you actually are able to interact with the very people that you've been speaking to for so long or been meaning to implement something, to test something, to help them, to improve some sort of process that they're working on. That was how it worked for us initially in Outprice. All of our theorizing just went out the window once we actually met them in real life. And that is actually what we remember. All those stories I told you, those are the things you remember and those are the things that you actually learn from and you actually develop into something meaningful so yeah i can't wait for us to be able to do that so for everyone who is listening what do you think is the best way for people to support you and what rising is doing you can support us by going to our website if you like our rice you can get it it's available in malaysia and the uk but more importantly actually if you know any farming communities that would need our help you know any organizations that would potentially be cool for us to partner with or even just speak with or if you just want to get in touch uh, and want to help out, you can contact us via our website as well or help at rising.com. And yeah, we're more than happy to speak to people about potential opportunities, potential public collaborations. And also, if you like our rice, let us know. <laughs> I imagine, you know, everyone listening to this can tell that you're so passionate, so driven about it, so much work. But what is it that keeps you going? I think the thing that keeps me going, honestly, was that there is sort of nothing else I'd rather be doing. Because I think what I try to remember a lot of the times, even when the times are very difficult, is that I'm not doing this just for myself. There's also someone we're trying to help at the end of the day. And it can be very easy to get discouraged and feel demotivated, which we have felt many times through COVID, through a lot of other challenges we face, even during the health crisis. But there's something that my mom said to me once, which was at the end of the journey, no matter what happens, right, you help someone already. And that's a lot better than a lot of other things you could have been doing. And I sometimes go back to that and think about that because it's true. I sometimes forget that no matter what we do, we have helped someone. We have helped the farmers who we have already helped and who we have installed the biomass dryers for. They have something that they otherwise didn't have before that. And I think that's what sort of drives me 
every day because it's like reminding myself of that it doesn't matter if I fail because as long as I didn't leave them in a worse position than when I started off I've achieved something and that is something that I will always have and that is I guess the the one thing that gives me comfort at what point did you feel as though there is nothing else you would rather do than this did it come very quickly to you no, it actually came quite slowly. And I guess the catalyst for that moment came right after we won, actually. So I flew to Myanmar right after we won. And it was a 20-hour flight from New York to London all the way to Myanmar. And we visited our very first pilot site. And there was someone there who was waiting for us. It was the first person we interviewed. She was a single mother, but she was also a farmer. And her whole family was there. And basically what happened was that that year, her harvest was just too wet. It was off the charts. And because it just so happened that we had put a dryer in her village, she could dry it. And for her, it wasn't so much about reducing waste or selling for higher price. For her, it was like, I can sell because it's dry enough that I can sell in a condition that is sellable. Uh, for someone like her, who only depends on like two harvests a year, it means that we sort of helped recover six months of her income. We saved six months of income. I never really understood the impact that we could have until she was there in front of me, thanking me. And she had brought her children along because she was like, you know, this is what I used to pay for their school and food on the table and fix the house. And I was like, oh, wow. Like I never expected that in my lifetime, I would have done that, like help someone like that. And I think that that was, for me, was a catalyst where like, okay, wow, we actually have helped people like it's not just a pitch that we're pitching at the UN or something like that. It makes a whole world of difference. And I think it was the stark difference that really drove it home for me. Where it's like, yeah, we can be there and like present and everything. But like, this is the point. This is actually real. And that is something that we strive for. So I normally like to end all my interviews with this question. Have you found your why? Sounds like you have. I would say I simultaneously have and I simultaneously have not. I have in terms of I really do want to help people. I really do feel that that is what will drive me. And like all the things that I am interested in will in some way be to help solve a problem. That's what really drives me. But the reason I say also, I put the caveat of like, I also have not, is because I'm also aware that life is long and unpredictable and a lot of things can happen. And to be honest, I sometimes agree with trying to find your why, but I also disagree a bit with putting too much pressure on your why at every stage of your life, you know? I think there's a statistic that says that only when you're like 38 years old, like statistically, that's when people actually do find what they want to do with the rest of their life. So my advice is always to take it easy. And I also sometimes have, have a trouble following this advice of like to tell myself, take it easy. You like to help people. You're doing the best you can right now and just stay the path and keep trying. And you never know if like another huge opportunity will come up again, right? That's how Hot Price happened. I was never expecting it. I was just exploring it. And then it just came up and then it really took over my life and in a way that I'm really grateful for. And I don't know what's going to happen in the next two years. Don't know what's going to happen tomorrow even. So I always think, take comfort in the fact that you don't have to be so stringent on your why as well. You can, you know it, but you also leave room to learn more about yourself as you go along. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? Actually, a very good question. Not many people ask that. I think the legacy I want to leave behind is I want to basically create a world where people aren't afraid to achieve and believe that they can achieve their full potential, where the conditions and the circumstances that they're brought up in do not lead them to believe that they are limited which is what I see quite often, not just in the communities we work with sometimes, because a lot of times they're just as smart as us. They can solve as many problems as us. And sometimes they're even smarter. They're more ingenious than us. They just don't have the exposure sometimes. They don't have the awareness of the tools that we have 
us the same opportunities that we are afforded simply because of where we are born. And I also see this a lot. Being the only Southeast Asian team in the Hulk Prize, right, in the Accelerator, the next two years, there were an explosion of Southeast Asian and East Asian teams because a lot of students would come up to me and tell me like, oh, because like once we won, then your, our university thought, oh, actually Asian can win. And then so maybe you guys should join. I mean, that's the reality of it, right? But I would want to create a legacy where people don't really think like that. They really think like, I can do it. And all I have to do is just try and push myself and I can do it. And what do you think are the most important qualities for a successful person? I think the most important qualities for a successful person, first thing is to not be afraid to try and fail. The second thing is you need to have grit or perseverance. And the third is you need to learn to have a little bit of fun. If you notice all the very successful people in the world, right, they have a bit of a personality, if you think about it. Look at Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Jack Ma. They have personalities. And I think you need to enjoy or have fun with what you're doing. If not, it won't really matter. You can't succeed. It's very hard to succeed in something you don't have fun with. And where can people go to connect with you, follow what you're doing, support rising? You can get to know us at the, our website. So we have two. One is for the UK and one is for Malaysia. So paddy.com is UK and paddy.com.my is for Malaysia. And that's where you can go to get in touch to support us, to see some of our rice if you want and see some of the work we're doing with the farmers. Fantastic. And I'll add all of that in the show notes. Is there anything else you'd like to share that we haven't covered yet? I think that you've sort of, well, that's one thing. Ling has actually been one of the most well-researched podcast interviews I've ever done because I think most people ask me the same questions again, but you actually went out of your way to research on all the things that I talk about in my social media and things like that. So it's actually definitely a very good approach. I think more people should do that. And that was the end of episode 47. The show notes and transcript can be found at sothisismywhy.com forward slash 47 alongside a link to subscribe to this podcast weekly newsletter. And stay tuned for next Sunday, because we'll be meeting one of the best mentalists in the world, who is often thought to be able to read minds. He shares how he first discovered a love for magic, using it to pay his way through college before eventually working, then leaving Merrill Lynch to pursue a full-time career as a magician and mentalist. One of his highest peaks, ranking third in America's Got Talent. He's also one of the very rare mentalists who has appeared on pretty much every single business cable news network. To find out more about what it takes to become a professional mentalist, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And see you next Sunday.